Last week we waded through the depths of David's sin with Bathsheba. Or as the Bible better knows her, we waded through David's sin with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We saw that one of the greatest men of God in all of history was able to sin in some of the most awful ways possible. Therefore, if he, a man after God's own heart, as the Bible tells us, is capable of such heinous sin, then so are we. It was part of the point. We are better than David, which means we too are capable of the worst sins. We need that reminder. We need that wake-up call to help us guard against our sinfully bent hearts. What we also saw is that if we are not aware of our hearts being bent that way, if we are not convinced of our hearts' uh, capability to sin in that extreme way, then that, then that means that we're making our first steps toward a potential major fall. But David didn't just make beginning steps towards a massive fall. He dove in headfirst. David's sin undid his godly reputation of 30 years in the span of 30 minutes or so. To make matters worse, he hides, doubles down, and buries in his sin for at least nine months. How do we know that? Because that's about the time it takes for a baby to be born. So the question is, now for us this morning, after all of that last week, now what? (laughs) Now what? What do you do? David has blown it in the biggest way. What initially appeared as a night's impulse has become the shameful umbrella that David has lived under for almost a year now. So what is David to do? What can he do? Is there anything he can do? Is there any hope for David after having messed up so big for so long? What about you? What about you this morning? Is there hope for you? You may have sinned in some pretty fantastic ways and are wondering this morning, is there hope for me? What do you do? You may have been living in sin that most don't know about for a long time, and you're wondering, is there hope for me to come from under this sin that has been part of my life for so long? Our text this morning says, There is hope for David, and there is hope for you in your sin. It is found in a place that at first might seem unexpected, but my prayer is that by the end of uh, our time that you will see it as our only hope. It comes in the form of one word, repentance. I know that does not produce excitement and hope right away, uh, but I think it's partly because we don't understand the importance and the power of it. David's sin with Bathsheba is in the Bible to awaken us to our ability to fall like he did. But David's interaction with Nathan that we are going to look at this morning is in the Bible to help us understand the importance and the power of repentance for sinners like us. So if you can or are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verses 1 through the first part of 7, or 7a. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had 
had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can take your seat. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would speak powerfully through your word. Cause these words to jump off the page. Uh, shape and mold our hearts according to your word this morning. Uh, I pray that you would speak, that I would get out of the way, that you would speak powerfully. And so Jesus name me pray, amen. So after David has blown it, he has undone his godly, godly reputation of 30 years and 30 minutes. What is David to do is the question. What does David do in the very next chapter after his big fall for at least the better part of a year? I don't know if you're ready for the answer that chapter 12 gives us. Do you know what David does that is meant to give us who are in our sin hope right now? What he does, the first thing, are you ready? He does nothing. <laughs> David does nothing in this next chapter. One of the most shocking and hopeful things right off the bat is that David actually doesn't do anything. If you remember, God was silent in chapter 11 until the very, very end where we're told that uh, what David did displeased the Lord. But in our text this morning, the beginning of chapter 12, it is now David who is silent until the very end. Because now God speaks. Because it is God who is active and moving now in our chapter. One commentator writes, David is in control and totally dominates the action of chapter 11. But God and his word dominate chapter 12. We get the tone from the very beginning of our chapter where it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Without these opening words, we would still be in the state that we ended on last week. A state of darkness and hopelessness. Without God's action and word invading David's life, invading your life and heart, we are completely hopeless and lost in our sin without God's action and word invading us. Therefore, one of the first things that we learn in this story is that what sinners like you and me need the most is for God and his word to act upon us, to be sent to us. Without that action, without the light of his word, we would be left in the darkness of our sin forever. It is easy to read by this or to write it off as not a big deal. It's easy to miss it. 
It's easy to move on and to focus on David's response to Nathan. But without God acting, David would have nothing to respond to. In chapter 11, the verb to sin dominates the chapter, occurring 12 times in chapter 11. It is that same verb that now opens up this chapter 12. But now it's God who sins, not David. Now it's God who has gone into action, not David. And here's the point. Without God intervening, acting, and sending, we are hopeless. If left to ourselves, we would have no hope in our sin. We would have no hope after we have blown it. We would have no hope to struggle against the habitual sin in our lives without God's action. But the good news right here from the very beginning is that no matter what it may seem like, no matter how bad the sin or situation that you have gotten in, God is active in the life of Christians with his word. These words teach us that God will not, will not allow us to remain comfortable and hidden in our sin. While being exposed can feel like the worst thing to go through because it can produce a lot of pain and anguish in the moment, the absolute worst thing would be that, that nothing would happen. The absolute worst thing in your sin is that nothing would happen. The most destructive, soul-crushing thing that would take place is that you and I would get away with our sin. God's love for his children will not allow that to happen. Therefore, the first comfort is not in what David does. The first exhortation for you and me in comfort is not what you and I should or can do. But the first overwhelming comfort is that God sends Nathan. God does. God acts. God sends Nathan to David before David has done anything in response to his sin. David had nine months to do something, and he did nothing until God sends his prophet, Nathan. In God not allowing David to hide and be comfortable in his sin any longer, we see that God's action towards sinners, toward David, towards us, is grace. It is grace, not condemnation, is his action towards us. The prophet of God, Nathan, does not bring a sword. He does not bring a sword to cut David down or to cut him off. But he is sent with a scalpel to do surgery on David's heart. There is pain in both of those scenarios, the sword and the scalpel. But the outcome and the goal is completely different. Right, Andy? <laughs> One harms and destroys, while the other heals and transforms. I think one of the hardest things for Christians to truly believe, one of the hardest things for me and you to believe, is that one of the best things that can happen to us is that our sin would be exposed. One of the hardest things for us to believe is that our sin would actually be exposed by God. Now listen to me, when your sin is exposed, when you become aware of sin that is in your life, that is one of the biggest indicators that God's grace has visited you. That God's grace is working in you, 
when you see your sin, when it's exposed to you. Seeing your sin, being made aware of the areas in which you have turned away from God is one of the surest signs that you have been visited by the grace of God. This is one of the hardest things for Christians to believe. I think that's for a couple of reasons. I think, one, it's hard to view us seeing our sin this way because it's unpleasant. It's not fun. It is difficult when you see your sin, when it is exposed to you, when you become aware of it. Because it's once again a reminder and a learning of why we cannot depend on ourselves. Why we can't depend on ourselves, which is hard. It's another way in which we see our need for a Savior. And in seeing that, we see anew again and again the need to die to the idea that we have hope within ourselves. That we have hope within our own efforts, our own strengths. That while while that is initially painful, and it is, it also produces so much freedom, so much joy to be found out. To finally stop hiding. To finally stop pretending. The joy and the freedom that that produces is a whole other sermon for another time. But it does produce that. The relief of being known for who you really are. Of exposed for the reality of your sin. Is difficult, but it produces freedom and joy and healing. I think the second reason why it's hard for us to view seeing our sin this way uh, is because we have a misunderstanding of what the Christian life is all about. Martin Luther's uh, first thesis of his 95 that he nailed to the church door says that the whole of the Christian life is meant to be a life of repentance. Not the beginning, but the entire Christian life. Is meant to be a life defined by repentance. The Christian faith is not for good people who are looking to get better. It is for people who know that no matter how good they become, it will never be enough to reach God. The exposing of your sin is not so you can double down on your efforts to make up for it. Christian faith is not about good people getting better. It's about people who know no matter how much they get better or how good they become, they can never do enough to reach God on their own. This, that is what happens at conversion, that reality, that awareness that we can't reach him on our own, that we need Jesus to stand in the gap. But it's not something that we move on from. It's not something that we move away from. Rather, it's a truth that we sink deeper and deeper and deeper into every time our sin's exposed to us. I think too often Christians are told for good intentions, but are told at churches that seeing their sin is a sign of backsliding. Right? If you've been in the Christian circles, you know that word. You've heard the word backsliding. That seeing your sin, you're backsliding, you're hurting your witness. But the Bible doesn't have a category for backsliding. The Bible doesn't know what that word means. It's not a part of a Christian's life. Because seeing your sin is not backsliding. It's seeing your need 
to slide back into the arms of your Savior. The first takeaway of hope seen in God's grace in our passage is that he acts first. That he acts by sending Nathan to expose David's heart to himself. But let's look at how Nathan exposes David. Look at how Nathan is able to get through to David in a way that shows him the depth of his sin. See, when you're a king in the ancient Near East, that you rule the land that you're a king over, but you're also the supreme judge. There's not different courts like we have in America. You do both. You're the supreme judge as well as the ruler of the nation. And so Nathan presumably peace that is happening under David's kingship for David to judge on. And the story he tells David is brilliant in so many ways. He says there's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has countless flocks, has countless herds. But the poor man just has one lamb. One lamb that he bought himself. This poor man used his own money to buy this one lamb. And this lamb has been in the family since the lamb was a baby. And the lamb is like family since they've raised it from uh, since its infancy. The lamb would eat with them from his morsel. The lamb would drink with him from his cup. And it would lie in his arms. You see the way Nathan's describing this lamb and the relationship. Nathan even tells David it was like a daughter to him. And this is so good. Because not only was Bathsheba the daughter to one of David's mighty men as we looked at last week. But the word for daughter in Hebrew is the first part of Bathsheba's name. Nathan goes on to describe a traveler comes in need, but the rich man is unwilling to take one of his many lambs from his many flocks and herds. But it says that what he did rather is he took, that should sound familiar, he took the poor man's lamb. That is the exact same way that chapter 11 describes what David did in verse 4 when he took Bathsheba. You see, Nathan is connecting in a very subtle way. He's connecting these stories. At the end, we are told that David, after he hears this story, is outraged in such a way that he bursts out and says, this man deserves to die. And Nathan gives the best punchline of any sermon ever when he says, David, you are the man. And now David's exposed. Now David sees his sin. Now David sees the reality of his heart laid bare before Nathan and God and himself. See, the grace of God has revealed David's sin to him in such a way that neither his head nor his heart can escape the clear reality of his guilt because David disjudged himself. And due to the grace of God coming from the word of God, he judged rightly. David deserves to die. And here's the question we must ask from this interaction. You ever thought about this? Why didn't Nathan... Start with you are the man. Why didn't he come to David from the get-go 
being sent from God and the authority of God and say, David, you're the man. That would have been accurate, right? Nathan had every right to come in guns a-blazing. David, you are a liar. You are a coveter. You are an adulterer. You're a murderer. You are the man, David. Like those people who hold signs on the corners screaming at people as that they are going to hell and that they need to repent. They're not wrong. There are people going to hell. We do need to repent. Why did Nathan not take that approach? It wouldn't be wrong. It wouldn't be untrue. The answer is because God did not send a sword. Right? God sent a scalpel. The goal is not to crush and condemn and bully people into repentance, but it's to heal and to forgive by producing repentance. David's head and heart are drawn out and convicted so that he truly sees and repents of the depth of his sin. He is not going through the motions here because he knows that's what he should do. He is not repenting because he has simply been caught now. He's not repenting because he wants to avoid any consequences that are coming that might, that might be coming that we're going to look at next week. He's not repenting because he failed Bathsheba or Uriah even. He is not repenting out of fear and hope of avoiding hell. He is repenting because he sinned against the king. He's repenting for his sin against God. Psalm 51 that we read earlier and verse 13 of our chapter make that clear where it says, I have sinned against the Lord. David's guilt and conviction goes beyond temporal and horizontal relationships. It goes beyond temporal and horizontal convictions. Those are included, but it goes far beyond that. It goes all the way to the root of all sin, which is breaking our relationship with God before anything else. Before David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he committed adultery against God. He left his relationship with God. For David to jump into the arms of another, he had to first jump out of the arms of God. And it is through Nathan's word that David clearly sees it. It is through Nathan's word of God sending him that David sees and is exposed for the reality of his heart. Nathan does not lead with you are the man, not because it would be untrue, but because as Romans 2 tells us, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the threat and certainty of his wrath towards sin. True things, right? And so don't hear what I'm not saying. God's wrath is real. It is scary. It is true, and it is coming. And when it comes up in our text, we do talk about it, and we need to talk about it. We're not going to tippy-toe around it because it's uncomfortable, because it's not attractive. But the point is that while your head might understand the reality of God's wrath and cause you to fear the consequences for your sin, that message will never reach and therefore never be able to change your heart and produce repentance. 
Only the grace of God has the power to do that. And the evidence that his grace has done so is when you and I truly repent. When our sins exposed is when we know his grace has visited us. You know, many pastors and commentators, and I think somewhat rightly, apply this passage. And they go from this point by saying, you and I need Nathans in our life. You and I, uh, we also need to be Nathans to other people. I think they're, they're somewhat right. Now, if the thought of being a Nathan gets you really excited, that you believe that's your spiritual gift to point out others' wrongs, you're not a Nathan, okay? You are not a Nathan. Please, you are not a Nathan. You're the guy in the corner with the sign, all right? Uh, but I do think it's important to have people in our life that we give clear access to graciously come alongside us to help us see our areas of sin that we can be blind to. I do think that's important. And I do think it's important that we all need to seek to try and humbly be those people for others. That we need to humbly seek of what we can do to come alongside others as well and help in areas of blindness. But I don't think that's what the text is pointing us to as our main need, as the main thing that exposes our heart and that leads us to repentance. I don't think that's the main takeaway. You see, Nathan is not simply a good friend of David's. He is sent by God as a prophet of God. Prophets in the Old Testament were people who brought and proclaimed the authoritative message and word of God. That is what this story is telling us we need. It's telling us that we need to have the word of God come to bear on our lives. We need the word to reveal to us the areas of blindness in such a way that leads us to repentance. The way a surgeon hand leads a scalpel to cut out the cancer in a body. God's word, like Nathan's story, is particularly good at showing us how we are the man, so to say. God's word and the spirit working in our heart is uniquely equipped and good at revealing and exposing how we are the man, so to say. We are the ones who deserve to die because of our awful acts of sin against God, our king, before against anyone else. And it is also in the word of God that we learn that years later, God sends another prophet. God sends another prophet years after sending Nathan. But this prophet doesn't just proclaim the word of God. This prophet claims to be the word of God himself in the flesh. What is so unbelievable is that when Jesus was accused of being the man while he was hanging on the cross, the word of God himself was silent. He was silent to those accusations. The reason he was silent <clears throat> the reason the word of God was silent is the reason why you and I can confess and repent like David saying, I have sinned against the Lord. Jesus in his silence is willingly taking not just some sins not just the small sins, not just the sins that you fight hardest against. Jesus is taking 
all of your sin. Every last one. He takes... He takes the biggest sin you could ever commit. He takes your habitual sin that you can't seem to quit. And Jesus endures the proclamation and verdict from the king and judge of all the world, of all the earth, which is condemnation and death. The condemnation and death that you and I deserve is what he goes through and endures for us. And it's that picture of his love and grace from his word that we, when we sin, we sin against that. We sin against that love. We sin against that grace. Guys, the love and grace of God is meant to help convict us of our sin. It is meant to help us hate our sin. But don't miss this. It's also meant to give us the confidence to boldly repent of our sin. The love and grace of God is meant to convict us. It is meant to help us hate it. And is also the reason why we have all the confidence in the world to boldly repent of it. The word of God silently hangs on the cross, accepting the accusations that say, you are the man so that you and I will only hear in our repentance what he earned which is the affirmation that says this is my child with whom this is my child with whom I am well pleased well done my good and faithful servant. When that proclamation goes out, you will hear uh, sorry. (laughs) When that proclamation goes out, that describes you and who you are in Christ. The proclamation that you are my child Well done, good and faithful servant. You are the man. Amen.